Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. You know, there are many issues and ideas that panelists on the show disagree about and that those of us who, uh, of you out there who listen to the show don't necessarily uh, uh, have uniform opinions of either. But I can't imagine there's a single person out there who doesn't believe that this has been an extraordinary historic week uh, in the United States. And for that matter, in Georgia, when you consider that uh, we now have two Democrats serving in the United States Senate, we're going to talk a little bit about that and about the week uh, in during the show today with our panel. Uh, at the very start, though, I want to just make a quick uh, uh, note to all of you. Uh, yesterday, as I think a lot of you who listen know, we had a major IT meltdown at Georgia Public Broadcasting, and uh, it, it affected this show in a number of ways. But one of the ways uh, you tell me in the notes that you wrote me that it affected you is if you were listening to Rewind and our show about COVID-19 on one of our streaming platforms, you lost probably the last maybe 15 minutes of the program. Uh, if you really want to go back and hear it, now everything is up online. The podcast is available. You can listen to it on Facebook Live on our website at gpb.org slash PR. So just so you know, it, it is available. And thanks for letting me know. I'm always interested in hearing from you when you encounter uh, difficulties as you did yesterday. Um, so yesterday, just as President Biden was signing the executive orders uh, that he put in place to uh, jumpstart his coronavirus response plan, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp was thinking about COVID-19, too. As we said in the headlines to the show, uh, Kemp uh, talked about the fact that the state needs a larger supply of vaccine. Um, but there are also questions about the distribution of the existing vaccine that we'll talk about today. Uh, this comes as Georgia becomes one of the worst states in the country for new infections and hospitalizations. As of Thursday, we surpassed 700,000 confirmed cases of coronavirus, which is an increase of about 100,000 cases in just the past two weeks. And so far, sadly, more than 11,500 people have died of the virus here in Georgia. And just yesterday, uh, we had um, 100 deaths. So we're going to talk about that, and then I want to get the panel to weigh in on this exceptional week in uh, American politics. To do that, we are joined by Kyle Hayes. He is a founder and host of Peach Pod, a terrific podcast about politics in the state of Georgia. Uh, Kyle, I did couldn't help but notice that your podcast, you're already starting to talk to candidates in the 2022 election cycle. Slow down a little, Kyle. Let's take a breath. <laughs> My apologies to all the listeners out there. Campaign cycle never ends, uh, but it's great to be back with all of y'all today. Uh, go ahead and promote the new podcast, who you've got on it. Yeah, so we talked with Charlie Bailey. He's a Democratic candidate for attorney general. He's running for this seat again after coming up short against our current attorney general in 2018. He's ready to jump in early. Okay. Well, we know that over the course of the next year, probably you'll be talking to Democrats and Republicans alike who will be declaring uh, for uh, state offices in uh, 2022. Uh, we're also joined today by Representative Terry Anulowicz. She's a Democrat from Smyrna. Uh, how are you doing, Terry? How, how are things down at the Capitol as you all try to uh, protect yourselves from the virus? Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here today. The Capitol was mercifully very quiet this week. You know, room 341 was we were having appropriations hearings. All of us have gotten really good at very subtly expectorating into a cup so that we can have our COVID test. The busiest time at the Capitol, if I were a lobbyist who wanted to grab as many lawmakers as possible, I would go to the Capitol at about 10 minutes till 11. Uh, in the, on the mornings that we do COVID <laughs> testing, because that is when you have the biggest rush of lawmakers coming in to make sure that we are all tested. But it's, it, you know, it's, it it's going well. It, it was a little dismaying earlier. Uh, was it late last week to learn that uh, such a large number of legislators had decided not 
to be tested, despite the fact the Speaker on the House side has said twice a week. And I think that's the same rule in the Senate, too, right? It is. But I think that one of the things to to remember, too, is that that first day it was the swearing in day. And so I don't think it was. I I do think there are people who just didn't want to be tested. I think there are also a lot of folks who just got caught up in the hubbub and the commotion and missed the window when when the testing site was open. So I think it was a a combination of those two factors. Okay. Well, we want you to stay safe, as we do all of the legislators uh, at at the Capitol and the journalists and the staff and everyone else. Brian Robinson is back with us today. He, of course, a longtime uh, Republican political consultant, uh, worked for Nathan Deal as his chief communications officer back in Nathan Deal's first term as governor. Now Brian runs, he's the president, founder of Robinson Republic, a communications firm, uh, even as he continues to uh, work with Republican candidates for various offices. How are you holding up, Brian? Have you already started looking at 2022 cycles uh, and and, uh, shopping for candidates to represent? Oh, that's already hot and heavy. Yeah. uh, there may be somebody else. There, there may be a reporter on this panel that I had lunch with last week about uh, 2022 cycle, but, uh, but we'll keep that secret for now. But yeah, I, I mean, there, it, it is it is beginning to, to form, and I think what we are what we're looking at is obviously there's this split in the party right now, and so a lot of the chatter is will there be a bunch of primaries uh, against sitting Republicans, which uh, I think that would make Democrats very happy. Yeah, that's what happens. I'm hoping that's not what happens. All right. Well, thank you for being with us today, Brian. And I wanted to save Patricia Murphy uh, for last today. Patricia Murphy, of course, uh, Atlanta Journal-Constitution political reporter. But Patricia, I am so thrilled that uh, the AJC this week announced kind of quietly that you, in fact, have become the new political columnist for the AJC. Your column will begin appearing on Wednesdays and Sundays. You're going to continue the tradition that Galloway established, right? Is that correct? Yes, that's right. We are retiring Jim Galloway's number, but we are still uh, filling his position. So I'm going to be out there on the field um, doing, playing the same role that Jim did. And um, I'm just thrilled to do it. Many newspapers have given up on political columnists, don't even have the position anymore. And at the AJC, it's really a premier platform to really um, inform readers and uh, really have a two-way conversation, I hope, with readers about uh, politics in this state, in this country. And at this time in history, especially, I just can't imagine what could be a better job. And in my job interview, I said, this is the job. This is the job everybody wants, and I want it, and um, I am so excited about it. Um, we're very happy for you. Of course, our listeners who have been with us for a long time know that you've been a panelist on this show since well before your days at the AJC. Um, and we should also say that you are now going to be uh, filling a regular slot. You'll be appearing once a week. Typically, it'll be on Fridays, which we're excited about. Um even as Galloway continues to be on the Monday show, we don't want to uh, uh, lose his wisdom about politics. So, Patricia, just because I think this is an important moment, um, you grew up in Atlanta, right? Yes, Went I to was born in Atlanta. Here. Yes, it's true. Yes, I grew Went up off here. To... Mm-hmm. Go ahead. <laughs> Well, I was going to say, every time I tell anybody I'm from Atlanta, they're like, but where are you from from? I'm like, no, I was actually born at Piedmont Hospital. I am from Atlanta um, and uh, grew up here, uh, went away to school, lived in D.C. for many years working on Capitol Hill, um, and then uh, became a journalist after that uh, to cover Capitol Hill as a reporter on Capitol Hill, and then have been back in Atlanta. Um, I came back uh, to raise my family here. My parents are here. My husband's family is from here. And so this is really, this is our hometown and um, working for my hometown newspaper, which we had on our breakfast table every day when I was growing up, um, is is a great opportunity. Um, you worked for Max Cleland and for Sam Nunn on Capitol Hill. Um, you wrote for Roll Call. You wrote for, uh, uh, at one point, Garden and Gun. You were doing freelance uh, <laughs> feature work for them. Uh, you did work for the Daily Beast for, uh, I think, for... Uh, uh, 
uh, and of course, you worked at George Public Broadcasting. You covered law. We were on lawmakers for a session. So you have a, a great background. I think one of the most interesting things, and then we'll move on. First of all, you're the mother of twin children, Harper yes. and Harper Henry. And Henry, Henry, Harper and Henry, eight years old. Um, but your mom wrote for the Atlanta Journal and Constitution when they were separate newspapers. She did before I was born. My mom was an education columnist um, and it was a freelance job and she got $12 a column. And uh, <laughs> I, I read, I've read all of her columns and she really was just a huge inspiration to me and still is. Um, but she said she, I used to be on the front page and I've seen it on the front page with Ralph McGill and you can't do much better than that. No, you sure can't. All right, so let's go to work uh, and ask you to uh, start us off. Uh, yesterday, uh, Brian Kemp held his news conference in which he made this uh, made it clear that he that Georgia still doesn't have enough vaccine to go around. I think he said they've now put about five hundred thousand plus shots in arms in the state, and that uh, we're still waiting for more vaccine uh, to arrive. But in the meantime. Uh, Patricia, uh, people are searching desperately, uh, those who are eligible right now, for a place to go to be vaccinated. Start us off and talk to us about what you heard Kemp say yesterday and where we stand, and then we'll bring everybody else into the conversation. Well, you're exactly right. The governor uh, raised the issue that many of us have been seeing in real life here in the state is that uh, the vaccine is in uh, short supply. It's hard to get. I think it's been difficult uh, to be distributed. And uh, the state needs more vaccine. And they are very well aware that demand uh, has outstripped the supply. Um, this is a problem for multiple reasons that we've heard from the governor and also from Dr. Kathleen Toomey, who was up testifying to the appropriations committees this week. Um, only about 25 to 30% of staff and residents in nursing homes have been vaccinated. Um, and we know also that because this is a two-shot regimen, the continuing consistent supply is gonna be required to get people, even who have been vaccinated once, to be fully vaccinated and effectively vaccinated. And um, this is a major, major problem because we also heard the Biden administration yesterday say that they came in to look for a plan about what's been done so far or what's to be done distributing the vaccine. And there apparently is no plan. And I think this is a very serious problem on a, a lot of levels. All right, so Terry, um we need more vaccine in the state. Nevertheless, uh, I, I just looked at the number. Actually, Georgia has now put 591,438 shots in arms in the state. But, Terry, that's only slightly more than half of the doses the state has received. So while the governor may be correct that they better get a lot bigger supply down the road, what's, there is some question about what's happening to the vaccine that still is available for people. That's exactly right. And one of the things that I've really realized in talking to people who have either received the vaccine or are trying to find the vaccine, people who are eligible, is that it really comes down to luck and tenacity and eventually almost becomes a part-time job. You know, my parents are in Louisiana, different governor. You know, every governor is handing, handling this differently. They were able to, weeks ago, log into their MyCharts from their health provider and made their appointment within a minute to, to get both doses of their vaccine. They're in between doses right now. I have an aunt here in Georgia who is up in Hall County. She spent a couple of days making just one phone call after another, going from one pharmacy to another, calling different county public health departments. She eventually was able to get hers by, I think in part, she's a really friendly person cultivating a relationship with a pharmacist at a supermarket up there. Uh, I have in-laws who were in Virginia they have been making calls and, you know, they're on a list of, of further health department, but there's just nothing. Virginia is actually, I think, even behind Georgia in terms of how they're getting their vaccines out. But it, finding a vaccine, if you're eligible to receive this vaccine, shouldn't take the kind of time and tenacity that it's taking right now. Brian and uh, Kyle, let me get both of you in on this. Brian, um, I, I get 
that distributing, distributing the vaccine is a logistical problem. I mean, we have uh, uh, county health departments across the state uh, that are in, in different states of readiness at any given time, whether it's dealing with COVID-19 or any other uh, health issues that they are supposed to be uh, dealing with. I get the fact that uh, this is a, a new vaccine, that manufacturing of it has, despite the fact that the, the Trump administration actually did uh, uh, ramp up dramatically the manufacture of the vaccine, there's still not production uh, uh, big enough to get across the country at this point. I, so I get there are all sorts of logistical problems. But I can't help but wonder whether the state of Georgia has not been able to mobilize, if at the very least, you're a communications guy, a communications effort that helps us understand what exactly we need to be doing to get vaccines. Are you talking on the state level? Bill, yeah. I assume? Yeah. Well, I think that yesterday's effort by Governor Kemp coming out having that news conference is part of getting that going again. You know, Georgia is unique in the situation as far as communications goes that for the past two months, unlike any other state in the union, we have been wholly focused not only on two high profile, perhaps the two highest profile Senate races in the history of the United States of America, but also this uh, the president of the United States coming in and making a lot of accusations about Georgia, putting the statewide elected officials coming in a defensive position in defending the, the record of how Georgia held the election. So we have had a distraction as far as communications goes that no other state has faced. Now, that distraction has not and should not affect the, the ongoing efforts to get this vaccine distributed. I, I'm sure that stuff is going. And as I talk with the governor's office, and of course, I, you know, I, I check in with our friend Cody Hall over there whenever I get a chance. You know, part of his frustration is that Georgia's not doing as bad as the records in the national media are showing. There's, there's a delay in uh, the numbers being updated into the public sphere. So we're doing better than what the numbers show. But I don't think anybody says that this is perfect. I think on the communications front, Bill, this is a tremendous opportunity for Governor Kemp to change the topic and to pivot into good governance and to serving the people in a way that's not partisan, to kind of break through all of this garbage that we went through over the last two months and do something that's going to literally, literally save lives. I mean, you don't often get that, that chance. And I want to see Governor Kemp uh, get out there because one thing that he's really good at it, he just have a personal touch. And I don't think anybody thinks he's got the best camera presence in the world. I, he wouldn't say that, but he does uh, emote well. He connects with people very well. And this is one of those issues where that communications talent that he has will serve him well in connecting with Georgians and communicating what the plan is and uh, kind of cutting through the clutter of, the, of negative stories about where we are, uh, telling success stories where they arrive, and raising the red flag where needed, which, which is what he was doing yesterday, he was saying, we don't have enough supply coming to uh, to serve what we need to serve. Going back to what uh, Terry and Patricia were saying, that second dose is a huge act swinging over our necks, and we've got to get them. Uh, otherwise, we have wasted a lot of effort. Well, two, com two communications tools that the governor could use just beyond his own appearances in public would be the phone lines that people are calling to get information and the scheduling websites that people are using to make appointments and get information about when they can get vaccinated. And it appears so far that those tools have not been up to the task. To me, it was concerning that the state is only going to deploy a statewide appointment system website next month, according to Dr. Toomey from that press conference yesterday. And I have questions about why that wasn't in place sooner. Obviously, there's a bunch of levels there between private providers and the state. But the thing that's concerning here is we're still vaccinating a relatively small group of the population. And it's a well-defined group, you know, at least until they got to everybody over 65. Are these challenges going to still be in place when you're trying to do a mass vaccination effort and concerns that that could let people slip through the cracks that are going to be harder to reach without having these communication tools in place and, and working as effectively as they can? Terry? 
No, Kyle, that, that's exactly right. I mean, it, it is it is concerning, I think, that we're not even close to the point where we're going to have some kind of a statewide vaccination appointment system. There are 18 public health districts in Georgia. And to a degree right now, whether or not you're able to, you know, not even get the vaccine, but find out how and when you can get the vaccine is in some ways, you know, it's falling down to almost an, a geographic lottery. You know, do you happen to live in a county that's been working on this for a while? I know when I was tested for COVID before the, we went back to the Capitol in June, I talked to the folks at, at Jim R. Miller Park, you know, with Cobb Douglas Public Health and that health district, and they said that they were already getting their infrastructure and getting their plans in place for how they were going to distribute the vaccine. And I was heartened to hear that. It made me feel really optimistic. Uh, but there are so many other, this, it's like, where is the infrastructure? Where is the framework? Where is the top-down the top-down infrastructure that's making sure we can do this. And it's it's very concerning that it's just not there yet. And we are a year and a day after the first case of COVID was confirmed in the United States. So, Patricia, I do think Brian uh, Robinson, to go back to his point, makes a really interesting point. Um, we know that Governor Kemp is already um, under fire after his encounters with the previous president over uh, his unwillingness to help uh, Donald Trump uh, take the Georgia election away from Joe Biden. We know he's likely to face uh, a, a challenge in the Republican primary. And I think Brian makes an interesting point. Uh, although the election is two years away, I don't think, and you'll correct me if you think I'm wrong, there's any question that how the governor and his leaders in the public health world in Georgia handle the virus is going to play a huge role in the reelection campaign. And, and so he does have this opportunity to start getting it right, doesn't he? Uh, absolutely. I think they always say that the best politics is good performance perform your job well, and you'll probably get reelected. That's really the way it works. And especially for a governor who, ha who is in a real problem-solving role, and this is a huge, huge problem. And let's just say, if somebody wants to get a vaccine today, what do they do? Who do you call? Where do you go? I don't think we even know that answer right now. Um, if we could take some of the $800 million that was just spent on the last campaign and run an ad campaign right now to say, call this number, we're going to help you. I bet he would get reelected. I mean, we've got to solve this problem. It is so serious. Schools are closing because of the spread. Even the schools that were able to open are closed again. Parents now need to stay home, can't go to work if they were going to work. It, it's going to hamper the state, the economy, children, the future until we get this right. And every governor in the country must know this is the problem. And unless this is solved and solved in a reasonable time frame, this will cost you two, four, six years from now. Whenever they're up for election, you didn't create the problem, but we need it solved. So, so I do want to be transparent about something here, Brian, or really, I think, uh, give information that matters. There is, Brian, a website that the Department of Public Health, the State Department, has uh, uh, as part of its own website, they've got a subsection in which you can go on the uh, line and see what the various distribution centers for vaccine are supposed to be, the, the pharmacies that are supposed to distribute, the county health departments that have access uh, to vaccine. And I think, Sam Burmistaz, you'll tell me if I'm wrong, I, th I think that yesterday we promoted that site on our social media. If not, we should put, put that up today. But so there is a website that the State Department of Public Health has. But Brian, again, as a communications guy, there's also a phone number. But as a communications guy, Brian, the question is, uh, shouldn't we all be much more aware of it than we are? Yeah, I agree with a lot of what Patricia was saying there about yeah, communicating some of the practical aspects of this, like what do you do next? And uh, I think a lot of people just simply do not know that at, at this juncture. You know, one of the problems going out saying, hey, go to this website or call this phone number, from what I'm hearing anecdotally, uh, is that the website's crashing because too many people are going on and people can't get through on the phone. 
So that's one of the issues about saying, hey, everybody at 4.30 on Friday, go to this website. And that may bring the website down if that, if that happens. So that may be a practical <laughs> yeah. hurdle to, to what they're doing. But you know what? I, I uh, have parents who are in the age group that can get it. And I've definitely heard their frustrations firsthand about uh, not knowing where to go, having difficulty getting appointment, and then them doing what others are doing in a way that's causing problems, which is making multiple appointments, hoping to just get one, right? And so then you, you've got these other appointments out there that don't actually happen, and that's fine with one or two people, but when spread out over a big population, that is a huge headache and uh, uh, creates a problem with you know storage of the doses. So. Those are things that, that uh, are obstacles for, for Kemp as he tries to communicate. Okay. Um, we're going to get to our first break. I just want to point out, you know, obviously, as I said on the show yesterday, if you were listening, um, we've been so laser focused for weeks now on uh, the uh, first, uh, the, the November 3rd election, then on the runoff election, that we haven't addressed the uh, virus in Georgia as, as much as I think it's important for us to do so. But now that we've put all of that behind us, I, I want to assure you that we really intend to continue doing our best to communicate with all of you just what's happening with COVID-19 in the state of Georgia. And we're already planning shows in the weeks ahead to do just that. So stay with us as we report on the virus. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back with uh, politics in just a minute. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Representative Terry Anulowitz, AJC political reporter and columnist Patricia Murphy, Brian Robinson, and Kyle Hayes of PeachPod uh, join us uh, today. Uh, Patricia, Politico Playbook had a fascinating item yesterday, which I think you picked up for the jolt, um, which uh, said that Democrats in the Senate, were Chuck Schumer uh, and others, were caught flat-footed when uh, both Ossoff and Warnock won the item in Politico suggested that they didn't expect that to happen, and therefore they haven't been quite as prepared as they might otherwise have been to take over majority control of the Senate, and that's leading to some interesting problems right now, Patricia. Yes, Republicans should not feel bad for being surprised <clears throat> on January 6th because they were not the only ones surprised when Ossoff and Warnock both won uh, their Senate races the day before. Um, and the reason this is having complicating factors for Democrats is that Chuck Schumer, who is now the Senate Majority Leader, really, it turns out, does not have a detailed plan for exactly what he's going to do this minute as Majority Leader. And he was sworn in immediately after uh, Ossoff and Warnock were sworn in. The reason that that matters is that now the Senate isn't a bit of a standstill because McConnell, Mitch McConnell, uh, the Republican leader, and Schumer are now having to work out a power sharing agreement under this scenario that we all knew was possible. Um, they are now still having to figure out what's going to be the split on committees, what happens if the committee ties, uh, what are we going to do with legislation, can it come out of committee. There's been this situation before um, when there was a 50-50 split. Um, but also we're finding now that Chuck Schumer's office doesn't seem to have a specific game plan for exactly what their legislative priorities are going to look like, exactly when and how an impeachment resolution might be brought over from the Senate. Um, all of this is coming over. Um, they're not surprises that these were possible, but the Democrats were literally so surprised that this happened and they do have majority control of the Senate. It's like it's a little bit like the dog that caught the car and they weren't expecting to. <laughs> Brian? No, I, over the last uh, two months, have spent uh, countless hours on the phone with national media outlets calling to sort of get the lay of the land in Georgia uh, and sort of get some of the history of Georgia and what was going on. And 
in the final week, like the end of December, 1st of January, I, I was saying to them, you know, y'all do realize that I thought we weren't going to win, right? And they're like, no, 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 there's no way. There's no way that's going to happen. There's nobody in D.C. saying that's going to happen. And, you know, people in D.C., they know everything, right? I mean, they, they are, it is the spouse of all wisdom there. And, and so if they don't know, it, it, it's obviously not the case. And uh, I was like, no, man, if you look at the votes that have been banked, it's going to be really, really hard to overcome this on Election Day. And I, I really think that they've got to be the odds. I was like, no, 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 no. And, and I was hearing that not only from the media. I was hearing it from Republicans who were talking to the National Senatorial uh, Campaign Committee. I was hearing it from Democrats. I have one buddy who works for Pelosi directly, and she's just, she was like, there's just no way. Uh, this is, it's still Georgia. It's still Georgia. It's still a runoff. So I, I can confirm that the media and the Republican and Democratic establishments in Washington did not see this coming. I think they went into Election Day, uh, many of them still thinking that Purdue and, and the left would pull it out. Kyle? One added layer of complexity here, too, Bill, is it's unclear the approach that the Biden administration wants to take. It appears that their top legislative priority is this $1.9 trillion COVID relief package. But in his inaugural address this week, Biden preached unity and wanted bipartisan uh, support for some of the biggest crises that we face as a nation. And it's unclear if he's going to get that support or not for Republicans. So it impacts the way Democrats approach their legislative strategy in the Senate, whether they try to make any effort to do something like change the filibuster. That also appears to be a, a, a bargaining chip in this negotiating over a power sharing agreement. Um, all of that is still up in the air and kind of just has to play out before I think Democrats can really find their footing. Um, what's interesting, too, Terry, is that for those Democrats, uh, uh, voters who were cheering the fact that Mitch McConnell has been relegated to being minority leader, uh, and for those Republicans who were fearful that without without McConnell in the majority, uh, not being able to block Democratic liberal legislation, as they would say, uh, it, it's not it, that, that hasn't that isn't true at this moment. Mitch McConnell, as minority leader right now, still has an enormous uh, uh, amount of power in dealing with any of the legislation that the Biden administration may try to bring forward pretty quickly. No, that that's exactly right. I mean, I think are the Senate Democrats the dog who caught the school bus? Absolutely. I think you know, in terms of them being able to get everything ready, getting ready to be in power. And believe me, this is a conversation that Democrats in Georgia have. You know, if we flip the House, if we flip, if we flip the Senate, are we like, what's our plan? Are we ready? Um, but I think part of it is just a matter of timing, too. You know, I mean, the, the runoff was you know, in the first week of the year. Everything wasn't truly settled until immediately after. You did have the the static of the, the stop the steal and the Kraken lawsuits and everything else that was going on. So I think that that there was a diversion of attention also. But you're right. This is not a this is this is a I've heard the term power sharing used a lot. And I think that one of the things that the Senate's going to have to do, and I think one of the things that Democrats need to, you know, we need to set our expectations. I think Republicans need to set their expectations also that this is not going to be like any kind of majority minority situation we've had really in recent years. And I think that it's I think that it's almost a like the choreography that's having to take place here. I think that it's I think that it's OK to give the Democrats a little bit of grace in trying to figure out how it is they're supposed to be doing this. Obviously, the Biden administration is now three days old. There's a lot they want to get done and they need the Senate to be able to get these things done. So. So, hey, Patricia, um, why don't you go ahead and comment on this? And then I want to talk about an interesting development in the Georgia legislature in which. We now have a Democrat who's been given a chairmanship uh, by the Republican Speaker of the House. So why don't you address both of those, what you wanted to say to follow up on this conversation and then talk about Mary Margaret Oliver. Oh, of course. Well, my my quick thought about uh, the situation in Washington, um, I do think that the Capitol siege really derailed everybody's plans for what was going to happen post-January 5th. Um, very understandably, it was just... Um, 
literally an existential crisis. And that has really had ripple effects um, throughout the House and Senate and has really affected people's planning, their timing, focus. And it has also changed, I think, uh, people's plans for um, an impeachment. It really has upended a number of things. And so uh, the further they get away from January 6th, I think the easier it will become just in terms of finding their footing. Um, and you had asked about the new committee chairmanship. It will be a name familiar to anybody who listens to Political Rewind is that Mary Margaret Oliver has been tapped uh, by Speaker Ralston to head uh, MARTOC, which is the committee that oversees um, MARTA and the met, you know rapid transit uh, in the state. Uh, it's unusual for a Democrat to chair any committee, and that is not uh, simply a ceremonial position that she's going to be holding. It's going to be a really important position for her. I think she's seen, uh, first of all, she and Speaker Ralston um, get along with each other really well. Uh, she also is in an area of DeKalb County um, in Metro Atlanta that's heavily affected by MARTA. She has a really good inside uh, viewpoint of what works and what doesn't work for MARTA. Um, and I think also she is just uh, enormously sharp and uh, works well with Republicans. And so I think uh, Speaker Ralston saw her as a, as a really important ally. Um, and it's also a way to just signal a, a certain level of functionality and bipartisanship or nonpartisanship um, in in uh, the state house that I think is an important signal um, that Ralston is trying to send uh, uh, to everybody in the state, not just Democrats. So, so let me bring you all in on this, uh, if I may. Uh, Terry, first of all, uh, one of the things that we've noticed uh, it, with Mary Margaret Oliver's frequent appearances on Political Rewind is just what a smart political operative she really is. She certainly... Uh, expresses her political positions, which are often at odds with the Republican majority in the legislature, with the governor. And yet at the same time, as Patricia said, she also really has a keen ability to be able to reach out across the aisle. And that certainly serves her well uh, in her position uh, right now. And, and the fact that she's actually been given a chairmanship it also strikes me it's a, a recognition by Ralston that the times are a changing in terms of the demographics of the voters of Georgia. Terry? No, I think that that's exactly right. I mean, Mary Margaret is, as the kids say, she's gold. She is, <laughs> she is, she is someone who, you know, the institutional knowledge she has, the experience she has, she has served in the House, she has served in the Senate, she has been in the majority, she has been in the minority. I mean, she and she knows the rules, which is, you know, and the speaker says this a lot, too. But if, if if you know anything when you go into the House, you've got to know those rules, especially when, you know, the, the margin, again, between majority and majority is much slimmer in the in the House, especially than it has been in recent years. And I think that it is it is very heartening that, I mean, one, Mary Margaret Oliver should be a chair. She has been a chair of committees in the past. And and, you know, she is. For Martok, especially, I think that she is going to be just phenomenal. I also want to, I'll give um, Spencer Fry a shout out. He was appointed vice chair of the uh, Budget and Fiscal Oversight Committee. I mean, so you have you have a couple of a couple of Democrats who are sort of making their way up in these committee leadership roles. Uh, Mary Margaret, of course, being the most spectacular and high profile and extremely deserved. Brian and then Kyle. I tell you, uh, I. I'm happy to fanboy about Mary Margaret. She's a, uh, uh, I'm a big fan. Because she, she is, she's, she's super smart and, and but not but fair. And and uh, you know, in this in this toxic atmosphere, uh, and I experience this a lot being somebody in this media market that does a lot of talking about what's happening from a center right point of view. Uh, the toxicity that I get in return for, for for my opinions is common, but never with somebody like Mary Margaret. I, I just she's a kind person and uh, and a reasonable person, and she's going to do a great job. Part of this is just the the issue that we have fewer Republicans um, uh, every every cycle in the House. Now they they held their ground fairly well in 2020. Uh, I don't want to overstate it, but what we have seen is a continuing erosion in the inner areas of Atlanta, which is where Martin means the most. There's really almost no Republican member, maybe no Republican member 
that has a district that Envarta Rail goes through, which is a, a new thing here. So there's that issue. But, you know, also with, with the, there's also a lot of committees in the House, just a ton, more than 40, right, Terry? That's exactly right. I think and, and, it's, yeah, it's close to 40. And the, yeah, 40, because you've got the special committees too. We have two special committees this session. And so there's just a practical uh, aspect of they need bodies to fill these committee chairmanships. And somebody like Mary Margaret, who's got three decades probably of experience under the Gold Dome, is a perfect for that. Because she's also, like, like she has done with me, built a relationship with people on the other side. Kyle, uh, let's just also add again what I, I mentioned before, which is that the, the speaker is a, a very smart political operative, too, and Democrats are making strides in his his house. It's interesting, too, because when the speaker talks about Republicans' ability to maintain the House this last cycle, he often cites the hate crimes bill, con- considering legislation around paid family leave. He wants he has said he wants the House to be working on issues that people care about and not caught up in all of the divisive politics. And this is an opportunity for him to have a productive governing relationship with a Democrat on an issue where they may be able to get substantive things done. And then you're likely to see Republicans run on that, at least the ones within sort of the metro Atlanta area, run on that in productive governing when they try to keep these seats again. Um, Ralston, I think, believes that that is key for them maintaining their majority, given um, just a somewhat shrinking voter base in terms of just number of people in the rural districts where so many House members are. Um, I got to get to our final break of the show. Before I do, uh, Kyle, let me just stick with you on this one. Let's do a quick shout out to one of the great survivors in Washington, D.C. right now. Chris Ray, the Atlanta attorney, was a longtime partner here at King and Spalding. Joe Biden is keeping him on as FBI director. And the fact that Chris Ray, despite his frequent uh, uh, differences, uh, public differences with Donald Trump over any number of issues of security, didn't get fired by Trump and is going to stay on as FBI director. I, I, there's not a lot to say about it, Kyle, except, man, it's, it's not easy to be a survivor right now in Washington, and he's done it. Well, I bet he feels a lot like Dr. Anthony Fauci, sort of ready to just get back to the job he wanted to do and not be so caught up in politics. I think that's a great way to put it. All right, let's get to our final break of the show. We'll be back with more on Political Rewind. Patricia Murphy, I don't want to close this week out without giving everybody on the panel a chance just to share their thoughts about this extraordinary week we've had in which Joe Biden becomes president of the United States after such a divisive, polarizing election cycle. Um, and, and I want to start that by playing one soundbite from the speech and then ask you all uh, for your thoughts on, on what you were watching and what you're looking for as Biden really settles into the job. Let's listen to what I think many people thought was one of the most important statements Biden made in his speech. But the answer is not to turn inward, to retreat into competing factions, distrusting those who don't look like look like you, or worship the way you do, or don't get their news from the same sources you do. We must end this uncivil war that pits red against blue Rural versus urban, rural versus urban, conservative versus liberal. We can do this if we open our souls instead of hardening our hearts. If we show a little tolerance and humility, and if we're willing to stand in the other person's shoes, as my mom would say, just for a moment, stand in their shoes. Patricia. Your thoughts when you heard that and the rest of what Biden said? So to me, um, it was really the image of the Capitol that gave me so much hope. Um, And that is because two weeks before was just this incredible scene of violation and destruction and just an obscene treatment of democracy, in my opinion. Um, And so to see it just two weeks later, 
tall and gleaming and white and beautiful. Um, and, and that Joe Biden got through it safely. And that, uh, now granted, it was surrounded by an incredible, incredible apparatus. Um, but it functioned and there was the transfer of power. And to me, just that moment was such a sigh of relief. I was so afraid for everybody on that lawn, to be honest with you. And the fact that nothing happened um, lets everybody else put one foot in front of the other and keep moving forward. And I personally loved Biden's message of tolerance and unity. Um, typically, there's a bucket list of items that presidents want to rattle through. And he only had one message, which is we've just got to function better and be kinder to each other. I hear that from so many people on both sides of the aisle. And I know people are hungry for it. I worry that we have a political machine that um, rewards uh, uh, poor behavior, no character, um, uh, no morals, and kind of a, a fight to the death, literally. And I don't know what to do to unwind the incentives that the current political machine um, of money, power, um, fundraising, dark money, uh, it, it it rewards the worst instincts among us, but we need the best results possible from the people once they get there. So that's my concern. Um, but I, I'm very hopeful that we at least have gotten through this period. So, um, Kyle, there's idealism, and certainly Biden expressed his ideal uh, thinking about finding a way to uh, uh, for all of us to to find each other again, to come together again. And then there's pragmatic politics. And of course, we've already seen uh, in Congress the uh, Republicans pushing back very hard against uh, some of the agenda, particularly immigration reform, which Biden is going to bring very quickly. Uh, but that's not the only thing. There's already Steve Scalise is already criticizing uh, Biden's uh, 100 million vaccinations in the first 100 days, saying it's not enough. I mean, the pragmatic reality of, of politics, and, and, and Patricia certainly spoke to it, is that we're not about to be unified anytime soon. Yeah, I feel very similar to Patricia, that I would like to capture that moment from the inaugural speech in time. But I just, unfortunately, if it doesn't result in sort of a new approach to governing in Congress and all of the, the uh, barriers to that, that that Patricia raised, I think are are very relevant there. If Biden can't overcome that, I don't see us being in a much different place than we were towards the end of the Obama administration or even in parts of the Trump administration, that ultimately people want results. And we have a system that has a lot of veto points that stops us from getting results. And people and relationships seem to be the best opportunity to overcome that, but uh, to be decided if they will. Terry, do you want to weigh in? I do. Yes. The I'm an optimist. Hope is the thing with feathers. I'm feeling a little more optimistic about, <laughs> about, about, about I am. I am about, about about what we will hopefully see during the Biden administration. And you know that inaugural address was, I think, outstanding. And it was very evocative of Lincoln. You know, that 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 term I means there are so many references to Lincoln. But in the clip we just listened to, especially talking about, you know, that uncivil war. And I think that Kyle is right, that people want to see results. I think most people, most Americans, and I'm not talking about, you know, anybody who's mad about parlor being shut down. I'm not talking about people who, you know, are, are but most, most Americans, like most Georgians, want us to be able to get along and work together and solve problems. I think that, you know, the, the vaccine distribution that we were talking about earlier in the show is a perfect example of that. I think most of our parents who are out there trying to get their vaccines don't really care which political party gets it figured out. They want us, the people who they have elected, the people who, you know, who those who have ele been elected have been appointed to serve in those positions of responsibility. They want us to fix it. They want us to figure it out. And they want us to do it in a way that benefits the most people and hurts the fewest people. And, and I do think that hopefully, you know, when, when these members of Congress, when they get out and they, you know, they, they start meeting with people in their districts, they're doing town halls, they're doing, you know, telephone meetings. When they talk to people, I, hopefully they will take what the people actually want to heart and will bring that back to Washington. Um, Brian, you, you're, you, uh, you know, I was going to come to you and, and I, you know what I was going to ask you about. Um, there are more comments about your 
somewhat more conservative positions on this show than almost any other Republican we have on from our listeners. And uh, you take it with a good spirit, but it does seem to me that being able to listen to your point of view is part of what Joe Biden was talking about in his inaugural speech. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You know, I, I I see a lot of snowflakes melting outside of the echo chamber. And I think that's an issue not just for the left, but for the right as well. And, and I think that's part of the issue here is we, we're not operating on the same set of facts. We're not hearing the same kind of news. If you watch Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity on Fox News the last couple of nights. It's a, it is, uh, you know, a, a cynical, dark take on what's happening in, in the last couple of days. And you go on CNN and, and there's the fireworks show at a dance party. <laughs> I mean, it's like, happy days are here again. You know, I mean, it, it is it is two completely different worlds. And I don't know how we bridge that. But I, I tell you, I, I'll say this. I don't have faith in the left or the right to to try to fix the civility problem. But I will say as somebody who is a Republican and didn't vote for Joe Biden, I think he's a good man. I think when he says it, he means it. I don't think it's rhetoric. I think he genuinely wants to work with Republicans to get those vaccines into arms, even if that means Republican governors get get some of the credit for it. I really do honestly believe that. But uh, too often... Too often, uh, I think when people say that we need stability, what they mean is, I need you to agree with me. Brian, I I give you the last word on the show today, and I think our listeners know that we will continue. I I think maybe we're operating in the best tradition of what uh, Joe Biden suggested, which is we hear each other and try to respect each other's opinions. So we will continue that on Political Rewind. Uh, Patricia Murphy, uh, Kyle Hayes, Terry Anulowitz, and Brian Robinson, thank you. As we leave you today, we've been talking to you about... Uh, small comforts and wanting to hear from you about what gives you joy, what gives you peace, the little things. Um, And we have a phone number that you can uh, call. It's uh, 404-685-2426. Leave a message. Tell us your name. Tell us where you're from and give us your small comfort. Here's what Ed Hall, a listener, had to say recently. Ed Hall calling. Bill Nygut and I really need to have a listening party because one of my great pleasures that has carried me through the last 18 months since the start of 2020 is music. Like Bill, I love Monk, love Hank Williams, but my two guys are Philip Glass and Charles Mingus. Happy New Year. Thank you, Ed Hall. We leave you with Philip Glass.